Well, am I on? Yeah. Can you hear me? Good. Man, what a great day. What a great week it's been. And I am very happy I'm out of the tribulation. Uh, Those are hard messages for me to give. Um, The reality of that kind of suffering, it's just, it's hard to study. It's hard to go through. Uh, This is much more upbeat as we move uh, to uh, God's program and accomplishing his program. There is the chart, and so we've passed the seven-year tribulation period, and we're com- we came to the second coming, the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now the thousand-year reign. Uh, there's Jewish considerations of the kingdom. I want to give you a background uh, there are so many things for me growing up and anticipating Messiah. Uh, I'll try to give you a picture. I've been a minority most of my life, uh, even as a Jewish person. I, I know I told you that. Um, the idea of a Jewish person believing in a literal, physical Messiah is not norm, not, not in the 21st century, not in the 20th century, and in fact, not even in the 19th century for the majority of Jewish people. The concept of a Messiah, no. Messianic age, yes. Uh, how will this Messianic age come about? We'll bring it about because man's improving. Man's getting better. And there's always a look at how man advances technologically and our culture, and, and all that. I do remember a Bible study that uh, my wife and I were in in Atlantic City, New Jersey, when we were first starting off, when I was first starting off just as a volunteer. And we had this Bible study, and, and the, one of the rabbis from the local area in Atlantic City came, and the topic in the study was man's sin. Man's born that way, that uh, he can't help it. It has to be dealt with. Um, and the, we have certainly allowed the rabbi to talk and to give his view. He had several members of his congregation in the study, and he was giving a typical evolutionist kind of future where man is just getting better and better. Things are getting better. We're going to accomplish it. We will bring this age to be. And the longer he talked, the shorter in the chair were his congregants. Because all that he was saying didn't mesh with them in the reality of life. But nonetheless, that's what he believed. And there's a, in the uh, Jewish funeral, there's a prayer that's recited. It's called Kaddish. It's an interesting thing. I know in some isms, uh, there's actually a prayer for the dead, various kinds of, of other isms that are out there. And that could be a comforting thing for the people who are doing it. And usually when they do it, they are focusing on that individual. Sometimes uh, in these isms, they'll actually pray for that person. And, and through their prayers and efforts, they can actually move, they believe they can move this person from an interme- intermediary place to somewhere else. Judaism actually doesn't do that. The prayer that's recited 
is a praise to God. Now, imagine that. Uh, one of the things that happened when I became a believer as the only son in the family. I have two sisters, one above me and one below me. The son is big. It's, it's just a big deal. And when I became a Christian, one of the things my father was grieved about, really grieved, was that now I won't recite the mourner's prayer, the Kaddish, which he regarded as a memorial. And it is a memorial. And it's liturgy. It's recited at the anniversary of the person's death. It's recited at key feasts. And so the concept of not praying in his mind for him or remembering him was very difficult. My counter, of course, was, well, Dad, I'm praying for you now. You're alive. I'm praying for you now. But this particular prayer, a lot of Jewish people don't know it. It is a general praise to God. And contained in the prayer, it says this, and may his kingdom come in your life. Well, the person's dead. The person's dead. They're not, they're not saying that about the person. They're praying that for the people who are there. May the kingdom come in your lifetime. It didn't happen for this person. May it happen for you. In your life and days and in the life of all the house of Israel, there is an expectancy. There's a desire amongst observant Jewish people for the Messiah to come. I always tell people, as a baby boomer, I grew up in my formative years during Leave it to Beaver, if you remember that program. It somehow has been imprinted in my mind. I remember the Beave as the show began, walking the oak tree lawn uh, houses at the beginning of the show. What big deal did Beaver have to go through? Uh, a girl noticed him. Uh, uh, Eddie Haskell bothered him. The problems were so minor. Uh, those were great days, weren't they? Those were, those were the good old days. And I always say, in those days, the 50s particularly, when I was young, I remember being in synagogue and the prayers that have gone, we long for Messiah. We want him to come. And so there is this desire to bring the next slide. <laughs> if, there, there we go. So what is this? kingdom. What was this desire? When Messiah comes, the kingdom will come. The messianic age will be here. There will be peace, real peace, shalom peace. Can I tell you, in Israel, if you follow any of the stuff that's been going on for years, I remember when Jimmy Carter got them all together uh, there was this strong desire for peace. Many people thought there'd be peace. In fact, Egypt and Israel made a treaty together. Israel gave the Sinai back. And in return, they got peace. Hey, that's one of the successful parts in Israeli relations with neighbors. Would I call it peace? Well, there's been no war. That's good. There's peace between Israel and Jordan. Land was exchanged. That's good. But generally speaking, there's not peace. It's a tough area. It's a, 
it's, I would always make the argument Israel's a good country in a bad neighborhood. And, and it's been that way for a long time. But the Jewish view is that Messiah's going to reign and rule. And there'll be peace, no crime or war or poverty. Things are going to be better, wonderful. And we look forward to that. I think I'll need help back there. I'm sorry, Bruce, if you'll help me out. These are Jewish considerations. Click it again, if you would. Maybe I'll click it. There's supposed to be a picture of a line. There it is. Now, there he goes. Isaiah chapter 11. Actually, this is a wrong picture. It's the wolf will lie down with the lamb. But the lion is so classic, I put it up there. Um, It is classic. The wolf and the lamb will lie down together. The millennial kingdom is not just for people. It's for planet Earth. It's for animals. Things are going to drastically change during this period of time. And it will be almost like going back to Genesis in the garden. An entirely different scenario than has been going on for all those years. Maimonides talked about, Maimonides, the great Rambam, the the rabbi, talked about this period of time and There'll be no hunger, no war, no jealousy, no rivalry. The full-time occupation of the world will be only to know God. And one of the 13 principles of faith that is recited as a liturgy in the synagogue, looking forward to the Messiah, I believe in perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, though he tarry. I will wait for him. Look, there's a lot of things about my people that that deserve criticism. Lots of things. Uh, And sometimes I'm a poster boy for you to see those things. I don't want that to happen, but sometimes it does happen. Uh, But certainly for those who are zealous for God, Paul Paul discussed that. There is a strong desire amongst observant Jewish people with focusing on the coming of the Messiah, looking for him to come. And one of the ways they feel that they can get him to come is to work at it. You go back to Acts chapter 1. Oh, there's the prayer. There you go. There There it is. There's the prayer. I believe in perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah. So that we wait for him. But in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, there it is. Acts chapter 1. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's a key question. That's a New Testament question. Bringing the kingdom. Having the kingdom. And Jesus, of course, said it's not for you to know. Most Jewish people, as I said, question a future Messiah. Most Jewish people question an afterlife. They question an afterlife. It's very seldom discussed. It's assumed at most funerals, if they even mention it at all. That's frustrating. 
the whole idea of Judaism today is life and living. We, we, I joke, and people have come up to me, songs, I, with Bruce, who's, you know, people know I love upbeat music. Good. That, that's, that's great. But I can tell you, when, when it comes to Christians and Jewish people, one of the criticisms my people give to you, and, it, and it's an old caricature, it's from probably 30 or 40 years ago. But the first person who I met who was a Christian, he said, hey, do you believe in Jesus? I just met him. Do you believe in Jesus? No, you're going to hell. Uh, you'd have questions like, hey, if you were to die today, where would you go? Reminds me when my eighth grade sister was going out on a date. I'm two years younger, and the young man comes in and says to my, my, my father said to him, so, young man. What do you want to do with your life? And he's in eighth grade, and he gave a great answer. He said, I want to go to ninth grade. (laughs) When we think about Jewish people, they're constantly thinking about life and living. This, This talk that used to be, and I think there's a place for it, if you were to die today, where would you go? I've had Jewish people say, I don't understand it. All Christians think about is dying and where they're going to go. What about living and life? It's fair. Can't we agree to put the two together? Can't we as believers embrace life? I think this camp exemplifies embracing life, going for it. I was, I was talking to one person here who has the same kind of desire I do, competitive, and we want to win. If you're going to do something, you want to, you want to win. I don't win too often, but I do want to win. And it's fun to win. And it's fun to participate. Man, I hadn't played softball in so long. It was great to be out there. And I've seen some of the games going on, the shuffleboard game, the beanbag game. I'm pretty competitive. Embrace life. But the question still remains. This is temporary. Do you have a reservation? Do you know where you're going? You could put the two together. Uh, if you, I've often got questions about when there's a bar mitzvah. What, what do you give for a bar mitzvah? I always tell people, from a Jewish point of view, l'chaim, chai. You've got to be careful in the front row when you say chai. You need a raincoat or an or, or umbrella. That actually is a composite number of 18. And so you give 18 or $36. And so I would tell people, how close are you to this young man? Or if it's a bat mitzvah girl, how close are you? I, and I say, just keep adding up the 18s and put that as the monetary gift. But if you can, purchase an Old Testament Bible, and give that as well. The chances are that 13-year-old person will say, oh, look, a a Bible, and uh, ah, money, good, good. But write something in that Bible. Write what's on your heart or how, how it is you came to know that person. And I've had people come back to me and say, I really appreciate that because I'm using my relationship with that person. I'm satisfying the young person with a reasonable gift, and that's a good testimony. But they now also know that I have a regard for the Bible, and I put a note in. And I, 
I don't know this for sure, but I would imagine that in that kind of relationship, that young person someday might pick that Bible up. I've heard testimonies of, of Jewish people who've had a Bible. I was given a Bible uh, when I was bar mitzvah, and I did not read it until shortly before, two weeks actually before I made that trip to California and came to know Christ. I started to read. I, I didn't even know why I would do that, but I did. And so they're asking the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Bruce, if you would. Um, the majority of people, Jewish people, believe after you die, the way you're remembered and how often you're remembered is the blessing they receive. So going to a cemetery, it's still a big deal. It's a big deal in Israel. One of the Jewish traditions is to take a stone and when you go to visit a person, you leave the stone right on the, memo- uh, right on the, uh, the stone or the marker. And so you're going in a Jewish funeral, and you can see some gravestones have no stones. And, of course, my people invented guilt. And so uh, I've seen, I know I've done it. My mother has done it many times, she, especially with her own relatives. Nobody's, no stones there. We've got to go put a stone in case somebody walks by. At least they know somebody visited them. But that's the way you have eternal life in many Jewish people's eyes. Look, that has a nice ring to it, but isn't that sad? Isn't, there's, there's no hope. The only hope you have is the next generation hopefully remembering you. And maybe the second one. But how long will that happen? No, the kingdom, the reality of the kingdom is much, much more than that. Bruce, thanks. Uh, The minority Jewish view, let me read the minority Jewish view for you. It's an observant view. Messiah will come when Jewish people bring him through righteousness, doing good deeds, mitzvot. According to the Talmud, he must arrive before the year 6,000. Now this is kind of complicated in the sense that the majority of Jewish people are evolutionists. Majority. They believe the earth is billions of years old. A minority believe in a young earth. Judaism, in general, does believe in a young earth. For instance, Rosh Hashanah, I mentioned it here, the new year, which takes place in September, it's going to be 5,779. So, According to the Talmud, he must arrive before the year 6,000. The Midrash, which is extra biblical writing, says six eons for going in and coming out for war and peace. The seventh eon is the Shabbat, the Sabbath, and rest for life everlasting. If Jewish people are not righteous, then birth pangs of the Messiah will happen. Is that interesting? I mean, that's amazing to me. That's what we were talking about. Look, if Jewish people are not righteous, well, guess what? No one's righteous. They lose. Then the birth pangs of the Messiah will happen. That's the Jewish view. Now, what about the Christian view? We already talked about that. 
so we can skip to the next one. Okay. First of all, there, it's wonderful to know that there's consensus amongst Christians. I have a degree in sociology. And part of that is this, for me, it was always attractive in talking to people, trying to iron things out, trying to work together, understand culture, uh, that, that kind of thing. And so this is a good thing. This goes according to my personality. What can we agree on? Let's talk about what we, not what we disagree on. What do we agree on? Well, as Christians, one of the things all born-again Christians agree on is Christ is coming to judge the earth. They all agree on that. Thank God. We agree. Christ is coming visibly to judge the earth. There's other issues connected with that and when with it and how and all that. But we agree with that. Another one. There is a kingdom. There's a kingdom. Christians agree that there is a kingdom. They agree that it has different names. There are different names associated with it. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom, times of refreshing, period of restoration. All these things are Christians say, yes, we agree. But there's questions that arise from that. What's this kingdom look like? Is it a literal kingdom, or is it a spiritual kingdom? Who lives in this kingdom? Are we living in the kingdom? Who rules in the kingdom? When does it come to pass? Is it described anywhere? These are legitimate questions. And there's, quite frankly, I always joke, get two Jewish people together, you get three opinions. That's a conservative estimate. But I've been in Christian circles long enough to know that there's competition there, that we have different views, different ways we look at things. And one of those is what's called the amillennial position. The amillennial position says there's no literal millennial kingdom. Well, if there's no millennial kingdom, then what is it that they who hold to this believe? They would say that the kingdom is here. And there's, you can actually find a verse that talks about that. We, we talk about the kingdom being in our heart. Kingdom is now. Satan was defeated when Christ died on the cross. And so... The idea is people get saved, they preach the gospel, people get saved, but there's, Jesus is coming back, and when he comes, it's a new heaven and a new earth. Christ reigns from heaven right now, and those of us who believe, we're in, in the kingdom with him, and we wait for his return to set up eternity. They're believers. Some of them, some of them are believers. The key is the gospel. So an amillennial person is one who doesn't hold to a millennial position. Next one, if we can. Postmillennial. What's a postmillennial person believe? Jesus returns to the earth after the millennium, which we're in right now. And we advance, that is, we bring Christ very similar to that Jewish view, through not good works, 
but through the preaching of the gospel. So we're talking about believers who love Christ, believers who know the only way of salvation is through him, but we preach the gospel, we want people to be saved, and we believe the gospel is going to conquer the earth, thus bringing Messiah, Jesus, the Savior, to the world. Which one do we, do we believe? Which view? Those two views or the view that, well, in, in Revelation it talks about a period of time. It talks about a thousand years. It talks about uh, right now the warning in Peter is to uh, beware of Satan. He comes as a roaring lion. So we take those passages literally the concept of being in the kingdom, if you hold to those two views, simply means that this is about as good as it's going to get until Christ sets up eternity. The premillennialist, the pre-trib premillennialist, well, not necessarily pre-trib, the premillennialist believes that the millennium is the fulfillment of the promise to Israel where the Messiah returns, fulfilling that 70th week, and things get dramatically better. And one of the central reasons it does get better is because Satan is now bound. He's bound. He will not deceive the nations. Now, mind you, that doesn't mean that people are perfect in the millennium. We'll talk about who's there, but certainly the... One of the important groups that are there are flesh and blood people like us who, are, who have first entered into the millennial kingdom at the end of the tribulation period. Thus, for a short while, there will be a time when in the millennial kingdom, everyone will be saved. Everyone will be saved until the first baby is born. And over time, those babies will be growing, and they will have to hear the gospel. They will actually witness firsthand the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ seated as the King of Israel. Fast forward to the end, in Revelation it tells us that Satan is let loose, and that people will follow him. That's mind-boggling to me. You've got the king right there. And people will be chomping on the bit, conforming to the rules of the kingdom, and there will be rules, but waiting for that time when they can give a rebellion. What's interesting to me as a person who studied sociology is that no matter what period of time in human history, starting in the garden, man is sinful. Created without sin, but if left on his own or her own, will sin. We have that capability. And each segment of time demonstrates that man is sinful. And so, when the Messiah comes back, what will it be like? Okay, I just went ahead of myself, which I usually do. So let's go to the next one. 
Um, what's it going to be like? Let me give you just some of the things that's going to characterize this period of time. Isaiah 32 and verses 1 to 8 tell us this period of time is a righteous time. This period of time is a righteous time. You know, when Jesus returns, we, you read in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, uh, his, name, his various names that are given to him, he is truth. Amazing titles. Things that don't characterize this period of time. In Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 19, it is going to be a glorious period. It's going to be glorious because Jesus Christ is the very Shekinah glory of God dwelling on the earth. It's going to be a joyous time, Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25. There's going to be rejoicing and real joy in this period of time. In Jeremiah chapter 31, it tells us that the law will no longer be outside but the law will be inside. When, before I came to Christ, I had already condemned myself to hell. Because I already believed in hell. The Bible taught hell. I believed that you had to follow the law, 613. Guess what? You can't do it. You can't, I never read Galatians. I didn't know the law was a schoolmaster. All I did know is that no matter how hard you try, whatever you did or did not do according to law on Monday, you might do or not do on Tuesday. And you've blown it already. By the time I was in junior high, this is just me, by the time I was in junior high, I knew it was a lost cause. It was a lost cause. So I did what was logical to me. I'm going to hell. So why am I trying to do this stuff? It's crazy. I could be set free for a period of time. And so, although I conformed to my parents and various holidays, I, I scrapped it all. And by the time I was in college, i certainly proud of my Judaism. I was living the life of a typical college student for that period of time. I thought I was a nice person, but I already knew that I wasn't holy enough to get into heaven. There was no way I could do that. Yet, in Jeremiah, it says the law won't be on the outside. In fact, Jeremiah uses a term called a circumcised heart. Isn't that a good descriptive term? A circumcised heart. Well, wait a minute. How can you have a circumcised heart? Nicodemus wondered how you could be born again. He was a literalist. Jesus said, you must be born again. Well, that's impossible. I can't do that. I can't go back to my mother's womb. Impossible. Jesus said, well, you really should understand that. Why should he have understood that? Well, in Jeremiah and in Deuteronomy, it talks about a circumcised heart. And by the way, this is before open-heart surgery. I don't know if anybody's ever had that here. But before that. So the concept in the Older Testament text is that God has to do something to your heart by cutting it, literally breaking it. You have to, using the idea of circumcision. 
that transforms the person. In the millennial kingdom, people, especially the beginning part, when they look upon him whom they pierce, for those Jewish people who welcome the Messiah, they survived that horrible period of time, the blinders go off and they receive the Messiah, their heart is circumcised. They are born again. It's amazing. And in this period of time, the population will be characterized with people with circumcised hearts. Ezekiel 37 says it's a godly period of time. God's spirit will live in them. It says, my spirit in you, you shall live in your own land. God's spirit indwelling them in the land that God promised to them. In Amos chapter 9, it says it's a prosperous time. They'll be planted in their own land. Zechariah says it's a luscious time, verse, chapter 14 and verse 8. When his feet touch down in the Mount of Olives, it's going to split in two. It's going to take the topography and change it. Right now, there's a dead sea. It's a great place to visit. It's a wonderful place. I love going down. I don't go in the water anymore, but I'm now the picture taker. So I oftentimes go down and I'm holding, you know, I'm taking pictures and holding sandals and towels and all that kind of thing. And then you can get mud and, you know, throw it on you and, oh, you go in, you look, you're 65, but when you take the mud off and wash it off, bingo, you're 32. It does amazing things. But the Dead Sea won't be dead in the Millennial Kingdom. There'll be a river that will connect between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. And a river will flow. It's going to change everything during this period of time. We're told that the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord, Habakkuk chapter 2. And an interesting one in Zechariah chapter 8, ten Gentiles are going to grab the clothing of a Jewish person and want to worship in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. Which brings me to another place, what characterizes the Millennial Kingdom. If you go to Ezekiel chapter 40, you don't have to turn there. 40 to 48, there's a temple in the kingdom. It's unlike any other temple that have, has ever been erected in the history of Israel. And there'll be sacrifices in the temple. Oh, does that freak people out? How could there be sacrifices? There was only one sacrifice. The only one who could remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. Amen! No problem. Then why will there be sacrifices? There's a lot of conjecture as to what the reason is. And one of the main, well, two main reasons. One, two ideas. One is a memorial. Like we celebrate communion. And there are a lot of folks who believe that's what it's for. It's a looking back. The king is there. He's, he's physically there. We'll know the story. We'll understand the whole history. And so we remember him that way. And that's Probably true, in part. But there's some other reasons. Not for removal of sin, but for cleansing. Rules within the kingdom of those who might not believe 
in order to function, will need to conform to the king's rule where until a person believes, in order to exist, you have to be in standing with the king. That's another idea. There are others as well. But this is one of the areas I like to say, I take the scripture literally. I might not know all the fine areas. And when Mr. Glock started his series of messages, I thought one of the neatest things I heard is, we don't understand everything. And we don't have answers, specific answers to every single thing. Now, part of that could be, we don't know enough. So, there, while I might not know something, another Bible teacher might. That's, that's fine. But there's other things that no one knows. But here's what I do know. Read the text in Ezekiel. Ask yourself, has there ever been a temple, the dimensions that are given, like they're given here? And you'll find, no. Is it true or not true? Those are the questions you have to answer. So I know there's a temple. And I know that there are going to be things in the millennial temple that are not there that were in the other temples. And it all has to do with the reason they're not there is Christ fulfills it. There's no ark. There's no Aaron's bud. There's no uh, uh, showbread. There's no lampstand. Why? The central figure in the millennial kingdom. The piece de resistance, the number one, the person that gets honor and glory in this period of time is Jesus Christ, the King, the Messiah. It all revolves around him. So at tabernacles, the idea of tabernacles is a remembrance. And so ten Gentiles are going to want to get one Jewish person and they're going to want to worship together, together in the millennial kingdom. What a day that's going to be. He is the centerpiece. When he returns, uh, when he, in fact, in John chapter 14, one of the verses we used, where I am, you will be also. Who's in the millennial kingdom? Well, certainly people, regular people survived. People are going to be born are in the kingdom. The Old Testament saints are in the kingdom. There's a resurrection of them, and they'll be there. Tribulation saints will be in the kingdom. It will be a mixed bag, a diverse groups, a company of believers from different parts of history, all living together. The church is going to be there in glorified bodies. It's kind of a joke amongst... Uh, those who talk about eschatology. So where are you going to rule? What part of the earth will you have? Hey, I don't know. I volunteered for Cleveland. I'm happy to go to Cleveland. I don't even know if there'll be a Cleveland, but I'm volunteering. What difference does it make? We're going to be there, and we're going to serve the central person of the whole deal. What a glorious period of time that will be. It's amazing. And what's more amazing is that the idea I had as an unbeliever, I didn't have any details. I, didn't, I just knew it was going to be a wonderful place. And I knew I could never be there because I was a sinner. And when I heard the good news, the good news, hey, 
You are a sinner. There's no hope for you. I, I knew that. Except Jesus Christ. He's your hope. You will be there if you receive him. It doesn't get any better than that. And you who believe in Jesus Christ, understanding you're a sinner, receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, going from death and hopelessness to life, not just for a thousand years, but for all eternity. The millennial kingdom is only the genesis of eternity. It's just the beginning. That brings a smile to my face, and I hope it does for you. Father, we're going to live a little in the next hour. There's nothing that brings more joy to old people like me than to watch young ones having a great time. Help us to embrace life on this planet with all its bad stuff. There's a lot of good stuff. And Lord, teach us now. Prepare us now for that time when we're called to either meet you in the air or to be absent from our body and present with you, whichever comes first. Lord, thank you for the life of the millennial kingdom. Animals who are different and act different. The earth, which will produce in an incredible way. What a period of time it's going to be. And let us get a little glimpse of it, even as we watch our young ones enjoy just simple things here in this period of time. Help us to have a time of glorifying God through this period of time. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.